I'm Pastor Daryl Curtis, and you're listening to the 29th part of my sermonic review of the biblical design of gender, in which my point is that the real test for any leader that God chooses to lead his people is whether or not the leader remembers that the real leader is God. The following is a presentation of the Family Life Baptist Church in Lansing, Michigan. For more audio and video content, please visit FamilyLifeBC.com. But our lesson for this morning on June 13th is the 29th part of our sermon series on the biblical design of gender. And the text is in the 12th chapter of the book of Numbers and the first two verses. And the Bible says this. Then Miriam and Aaron spoke against Moses because of the Ethiopian woman whom he had married, for he had married an Ethiopian woman. So they said, has the Lord indeed spoken only through Moses? Has he not spoken through us also? And the Lord heard it. God bless the reading of his word and let us bow our heads in a word of prayer. Gracious God, our Father, we thank you afresh for the total sufficiency of Jesus Christ, for the perfect teaching ministry of your blessed Holy Spirit, and for his ability to explain your word. So give us the words to say and let us say them with liberty, with clarity, and with boldness, and that somebody listening might believe the report. Thanking you in advance for all that you are going to do in the strong and perfect name of Jesus Christ our Lord, we pray. Amen. Now, thank you very much for coming to hear our message for this morning. And before we begin this, our next lesson, let us reiterate our reason for attending church. We attend church to obtain the mind of Christ, meaning to have the Bible illuminated in our minds so that we can clearly understand the principles that Jesus taught and base our daily personal decisions on those principles. We come to church because we want to be obedient to the Bible, which is the doctrine of Jesus Christ in an informed, insightful, and intelligent manner. Now, our takeaway point in this series on the biblical design of gender is that God has designed man as the cooperative coalition of husband and wife so that man can successfully achieve the objective that God has given us to exercise dominion over the earth, developing wisdom and knowledge in preparation for further responsibility in our eternal life. Now, in our last lesson, we spent time chronicling the special ordinances that God instituted for the priests, those men who were designated as the keepers of God's temple. The position of priests came into existence because although God selected Moses to preside over the nation of Israel, Moses deferred because of his poor speaking ability. Exodus chapter 4, verse 13 through 16 records, But Moses said, O my Lord, Please send by the ham of a hand of whomever else you may send. So the anger of the Lord was kindled against Moses, and he said, Is not Aaron the Levite your brother? I know he can speak well, and look, he is coming out to meet you. When he sees you, he will be glad in his heart. Now you shall speak to him and put the words in his mouth, and I will be with your mouth and with his mouth and I will teach you what you shall do. So Aaron shall be your spokesman to the people, and he himself shall be as a mouth for you, and you shall be to him as God. 
So Aaron joined the Israelite Liberation Committee as the spokesperson. And when the Israelites left Egypt, Aaron became the high priest, the one that spoke, uh, that delivered messages to the people from Moses, who received the information from God. And when the Bible says the Lord spoke to Moses, actually, the Lord spoke to Moses, Moses spoke to Aaron, and Aaron told the people that which Moses told him. And not only did Aaron speak for Moses, but Moses' older sister Miriam spoke for Moses. When Moses was just a newborn, the Pharaoh commanded the Israelite women to drown their male children in the Nile River. Moses' mother decided to put Moses inside of a little boat to float him until, hopefully, an Egyptian saw the baby in the boat and took pity on him. Fortunately, that was exactly that which happened. When the Pharaoh's daughter saw Moses floating, she took pity on him and drew Moses up out of the water. Miriam had been watching the little boat to see what would happen to her little brother, and she spoke up for him, as Exodus chapter 2, verse 7 through 10 records. Then his sister Miriam said to Pharaoh's daughter, Shall I go and call a nurse for you from the Hebrew women, that she may nurse the child for you? And the Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Go. So the maiden went and called the child's mother. And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Take this child away and nurse him for me, and I will give you your wages. So the woman took the child and nursed him, and the child grew, and she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter, and he became her son. And she called his name Moses, saying, Because I drew him out of the water. So Miriam watched over the baby Moses until he left to become the son of Pharaoh's daughter, and she resumed her watchfulness when Moses became the leader of the nation of Israel. When Moses stretched out his rod to hold back the Red Sea so that the Israelites could cross through the sea on dry land, Miriam was watching. And when the Egyptians followed the Israelites into the Red Sea, uh, Moses stretched out his rod again to allow the sea to come back together and drown the Egyptians. Miriam was still watching, and Miriam became the leader of the women who were rejoicing at seeing their tormentors killed at the bottom of the sea. Exodus 15, 20 and 21 records, Then Miriam the prophetess, the sister of Aaron, took the timbrel in her hand, and all the women went out after her with timbrels and with dances, and Miriam answered them, Sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and its rider he has thrown into the sea. So both Aaron and Miriam are familiar with the relationship between God and Moses. Aaron, as the priest, has received the word of God directly from Moses and given it to the people. And Miriam, as a prophetess, has received inspiration from the Lord to allow her to lead the women in song to testify as to what God has done for Israel. And both Aaron and Miriam have been instrumental in Moses' leadership. But Miriam and Aaron are causing a controversy in the camp. Numbers chapter 12, verse 1 tells us, Then Miriam and Aaron spoke against Moses because of the Ethiopian woman whom he had married, for he had married an Ethiopian woman. 
Now, apparently, just before the episode of Numbers chapter 12, Moses increased the size of his harem by marrying a woman from, North, from the North African region known as Cush, which is modern-day Ethiopia. 400 years earlier, Joseph, the ancestor of the Israelites, was sold into Egyptian slavery and through a set of fortuitous circumstances became the second in command in Egypt to save Egypt from a famine. And as a result of the famine, Joseph brought the 70 members of his family, those being his parents, siblings, and his siblings' immediate families to Egypt to keep them alive during the famine. Joseph's family stayed, stayed in Egypt and grew, and by the time of which we are speaking, the number of men in Joseph's family grew from the original number of less than 70 to over 600,000. The descendants of Joseph intermarried with the Egyptian, with the inhabitants of Egypt while they, while they were there. Exodus 12, uh, chapter 12, verse 37 and 38 tells us, Then the children of Israel journeyed from Ramesses to Succoth, about 600,000 men on foot besides children. <coughs> A mixed multitude went up with them also, and flocks and herds, a great deal of livestock. Now, the mixed multitude was those of other ethnicities that had intermarried with the Israelites while they were in Egypt. There were, there were not only Egyptians in Egypt. Just as the family of Joseph migrated to Egypt during the famine, people from other lands were drawn to Egypt as the place with food to eat. Egypt became a cosmopolitan kingdom because of the famine and people that migrated to the plentiful supplies of Joseph's storehouses in Egypt had little reason to return home to their famine-stricken countries. But as in every cosmopolitan country, there are those in each ethnic group that thought that their group should maintain their ethnic purity. Now, the women in the ethnic group are most often threatened by the men of their group marrying someone from outside of it. This is because... The men of the ethnic group can choose whom they will marry, but in order to marry, the women have to wait to be asked. Now, this week, I was conversing with a woman whose son is considering asking a young woman to marry him. Now, the woman had some pictures of the young lady in whom her son was interested, and she was struck, as were those to whom she showed the pictures, by the resemblance between herself and the woman that her son was considering. In our conversation on the topic, I said, I'm sure you remember the old song that says, I want a girl just like the girl that married dear old dad. That song is stereotypically true. A boy's mother is the first woman that the boy loves, and when he looks for a wife, he is drawn to his mother's attribute, both physical and emotional, as he tries to duplicate his original home. So it is normal for your son to pick a woman that looks like you. Thus, it is intuitively obvious that young men are generally attracted to young women of their mother's ethnicity. And since women have to wait to be asked to marry, it is also intuitively obvious that young women expect a young man of their own ethnicity to ask them for their hands in marriage. Thus, 
young women feel a sense of ownership of the young men of their ethnicity. Now, if, as most young women postulate, the number of young men born in a particular population are roughly equivalent to the number of young women, the obvious conclusion to which a young woman would come would be that for every young man that picks a woman of a different ethnicity, a young woman of her ethnicity has to do without a husband. And the young woman is defenseless against this situation. She has to wait for a marriage proposal. She cannot ask a young man of her ethnicity or of any other ethnicity to marry her. So it is intuitively obvious that a young woman would be possessive of young men of her own ethnicity, and she would be perturbed when a young man of her ethnicity marries a woman of a different ethnicity, especially if she has no personal prospects for marriage. But the case of Moses is an interesting history. Although Moses is an Israelite and is the leader of the nation of Israel, Moses was raised in the house of the Pharaoh by the Pharaoh's daughter, a black woman. Yes, Moses' natural mother nursed him until he was weaned, but Exodus 2, 9 and 10 tells us, Then Pharaoh's daughter said to Moses' natural mother, Take this child away and nurse him for me, and I will give you your wages. So Moses' natural mother took the child and weaned him, and the child grew, and Moses' natural mother brought him to Pharaoh's daughter, and he became her son. So she called his name Moses, saying, because I drew him out of the water. So although Moses was an Israelite by birth, Moses was brought up in an Egyptian home. Moses felt a political affinity for his people, but because of his upbringing, Moses was attracted to black women. And when Moses had to escape Egypt through the Sinai Desert, Midian was the first country to which Moses came, and the priest of Midian gave Moses his daughter as wife as wages for his labor. But after Moses returned to Egypt, rescued the nation of Israel, and had the opportunity to pick the wife that he wanted from the mixed multitude of Israel, Moses picked the black woman from Ethiopia that looked like the woman in whose house he grew up. Now Miriam, for the reason stated earlier, was incensed, that Moses married outside of his race. After all, if the leader of the nation married outside of the race, why would any Israelite marry inside of the race? So Miriam sought to dethrone Moses from his leadership position because of the betrayal that she felt. Numbers 20, 12 and 2 tells us, So Miriam and Aaron said, Has the Lord indeed spoken only through Moses? Has he not spoken through us also? And the Lord heard it. And Miriam is the ringleader, and Aaron is the follower. Now we can see Aaron's propensity for leading by following in Exodus chapter 32, verses 1 through 4 and 21 through 24, which says, Now when the people saw that Moses delayed from coming down from the mountain, the people gathered together to Aaron and said to him, Come make us gods that shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. So Aaron said to them, Break off the golden earrings which are in the ears of your wives, your son, and your daughters, and bring them to me. 
and he received the gold from their hand, and he fashioned it with an engraving tool and made a molded calf. Then they said, This is your God, O Israel, that brought you out of the land of Egypt. And Moses said to Aaron, What did this people do to you that you have brought so great a sin upon them? So Aaron said, Do not let the anger of my Lord become hot. You know the people, that they are set on evil. For they said to me, Make us gods that shall go before us. As to this Moses, the man that brought us out of Egypt, the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. And I said to them, Whoever has any gold, let him break it off. So they gave it to me, and I cast it into the fire, and this calf came out. Now Aaron was the priest of God. But as he said in verse 22, the people were set on evil, and Aaron was not strong enough to restrain them. What the people and what people wanted Aaron to make a golden calf? Well, probably not the Israelites. More likely, members of the mixed multitude demanded that Aaron make an idol god in the absence of Moses, as they were the they were from the countries that worshipped idols. Aaron was not really a leader. Aaron was really just Moses' mouthpiece, which made him a follower rather than a leader. And when Moses was not available, Aaron looked for another leader to tell him that which he should do. Miriam now has another reason to be negative about the mixed multitude, especially the women who Miriam blamed for both, for both taking the Jewish men as husbands and inciting Aaron to create idols. That mixed multitude was looking more and more like the real problem to Miriam, who thought that, all, that although someone needed to stop them, Aaron was colluding with them and Moses was marrying them. So Miriam decided to rip Moses for his lack of leadership and drag Aaron along as her accomplice, much as the woman drugged the man in the garden, of which Genesis 3.12 tells us, and the man said, the woman whom you gave me to be with me, she gave me of the tree and I ate. Now, when Miriam challenged Moses, what was Moses' response? Nothing. Numbers chapter 12, verse 3 tells us, Now the man Moses was very humble, more than all the men who were on the face of all the earth. Moses was so humble that he would not tell the people what thus said the Lord, but used Aaron as a mouthpiece when transmitting the will of God. Moses did not defend himself against Miriam when she confronted him because of his meekness. But Moses told the people of Israel in Exodus 14 and 14, the Lord will fight for you and you shall hold your peace. Second Chronicles 20 and 15 tells us, Thus says the Lord to you, do not be afraid nor dismayed because of this great multitude, for the battle is not yours, but God's. Isaiah 30 and 15 tells us, for thus says the Lord God, the Holy One of Israel, in returning and rest you shall be saved, in quietness and confidence shall be your strength. So Moses accepted Miriam's rebuke without retort. Because Moses was the man that God chose to establish the nation. But the real test for any leader that God chose, chooses to lead his people 
is whether or not the leader remembers that the real leader is God. The actual job of any Christian leader is to simply transmit the word of God to the people. And this is even true for Jesus Christ. During his earthly ministry, someone asked Jesus about the plan of salvation. Matthew 19, 16 records, Now behold, one came and said to Jesus, Good teacher, what good things shall I do that I may have eternal life? But Jesus himself would not even accept the accolade of being called good. Jesus responded in Matthew 19, 17, So Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good but one, that is, God. But if you want to enter into life, keep the commandments. So even Jesus, the Son of God, deferred to the goodness and the commandments of God rather than accepting accolades or preaching salvation by belief in himself. When the questioner asked Jesus to which commandments did he refer, Jesus once again pointed the question to God. In Matthew chapter 19, verse 18 and 19, which says, Jesus said, you shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness, honor your father and your mother, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. So Jesus quoted the scripture that God gave to Moses and that the questioner had been exposed to from his youth. But the questioner was like King Herod who wanted to see Jesus perform a miracle for him personally. The questioner wanted a personal answer rather than a scriptural or generic answer, so he brushed aside the scripture and continued questioning Jesus. Matthew 19 and 20 records, The young man said to him, All these things I have kept from my youth, what do I still lack? I can see your holiness and I want to duplicate it, replied the young man. I've kept all the general commandments, but what special activity can I perform that will put me on a plane with you? So Jesus answered his question in Matthew 19 and 21. Jesus said to him, if you want to be perfect, go sell what you have and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come follow me. There's only one thing that will put you on a plane with Jesus. You have to follow Jesus, meaning you have to do that which Jesus did. Philippians 2, 5 through 8 tells us, tells us, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, taking on the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. Jesus was equal with God, but God sent Jesus to give all that he had to us and then give himself to God's ministry of salvation, to the point of his own death, even the death of the cross. That, my friend, is following Jesus. In order to be like Jesus, you first have to divest yourself of all of your assets and then divest yourself of yourself. 
That's what Jesus did, and that's what Jesus meant by come, follow me. And Isaiah 53 and 7 tells us he was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. He was led as a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. And just as Moses did not answer Miriam, Jesus did not answer those that crucified him. Jesus did not defend himself at either his Jewish or Roman trial. Jesus testified to the truth that he is the son of God, but said nothing to persuade either the Jews or the Romans to let him go. So a follower of Jesus cannot defend himself himself or herself at the cost of contradicting the scripture. A follower of Jesus cannot use the wisdom of man, but, my, but must justify his position with the wisdom of God given to us by the scripture as, by, as inspired by the Holy Spirit. And Paul teaches us in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 13, these things we also speak, not in words which man's wisdom teaches, but which, is, which the Holy Spirit teaches, comparing spiritual things with spiritual. Then in 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17, Paul also says, all scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. So when asked a question, Jesus quoted the scripture. When faced with those who, that rejected the scripture, Jesus answered them nothing. And Jesus instructs us in Matthew chapter 10, verse 14 and 15, and whoever will not receive you nor hear your words when you depart from that house or city, shake off the dust from your feet. Assuredly, I say to you, it will be more tolerable for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah in the day of judgment than for that city. So once the man of God has given you the scripture, he has nothing more of substance to say. And Moses did not debate Miriam because when it is foolish to speak, the wise say nothing. And as God told the children of Israel in 2 Chronicles 20 and 17, you will not need to fight this battle. Position yourselves, stand still, and see the salvation of the Lord who is with you, O Judah and Jerusalem. But the battle was fought. Numbers chapter 12, verse 4 through 10 records, Suddenly the Lord said to Moses, Aram, and Miriam, Aaron and Miriam, Come out, you three, to the tabernacle of meeting. So the three came out. Then the Lord came down in the pillar of cloud and stood in the door of the tabernacle and called Aaron and Miriam, and they both went forward. Then God said, Hear now my words. If there is a prophet among you, I, the Lord, make myself known to him in a vision. I speak to him in a dream. Not so with my servant Moses. He is faithful in all my house. I speak to him face to face, even plainly, and not in dark sayings. And he sees the form of the Lord. Why then were you not afraid to speak against my servant Moses? 
So the anger of the Lord was aroused against them, and he departed. And when the cloud departed from among the tabernacle, suddenly Miriam became leprous as white as snow. Then Aaron turned toward Miriam, and there she was, a leper. What did Moses do about Miriam? Nothing. He stood still and saw his vindication in the eyes of God. Miriam didn't like Moses' choice in a wife, but the Lord did not object to it. Miriam decided to rebuke Moses based upon her personal preference, but there was nothing in the scripture as it was given that denied Moses his choice of a wife. Miriam's personal preference was not binding on Moses, and for her to rebuke the man of God for doing something which the scripture does not call sin was foolish. And as Ecclesiastes 5 and 4 tells us, God has no pleasure in fools. Aaron, who stood with Miriam as she rebuked Moses, was horrified and asked Moses to intercede for her. As Numbers 12, 11 and 12 records, So Aaron said to Moses, O my Lord, please do not lay this sin on us in which we have done foolishly and in which we have sinned. Please do not let her be as one dead, whose flesh is half consumed when he comes out of his mother's womb. So Moses prayed for his sister, and God concluded the matter with Numbers chapter 12, verse 14 and 15, which says, Then the Lord said to Moses, If her father had but spit in her face, would she not be shamed seven days? Let her be shut out of the camp seven days, and afterward she may be received again. So Miriam was shut out of the camp seven days. And the people did not journey till Miriam was brought in again. 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17 tells us, All scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. And before you decide to rebuke someone, it is good to find their particular sin in the scripture and then read them the scripture as a rebuke. As according to Paul, that is the reason that we have the scripture. I'm not supposed to tell you to live according to that which I think, but it is my job to tell you that which the scripture says. The record is that God allows the devil to try to deceive us as the devil deceived the man and the woman in the garden, because once God gives us his word, he expects us to choose to follow him over that which the devil tells us. God instructs us in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 11 through 18, put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this age, against the spiritual host of wickedness in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand. Stand, therefore, having girded your waist with truth and having put on the breastplate of righteousness and having your feet shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace. Above all, taking the shield of faith, 
with which you will be able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked one and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God, praying always with all prayer and supplication in the spirit and being watchful to this end with all perseverance and supplication for all the saints. And the mystery of the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, is much like the mystery of Moses who allowed God to defend him. The good news is that Jesus Christ allowed God to defend him as well. Jesus gave his back to the smiters, his cheek to those that plucked off the hair, and did not hide his face from shame and spitting. Jesus made the ultimate sacrifice. As his bones were pulled out of joint, he was nailed to the old rugged cross, and then his body was broken and his blood was shed as a full, perfect, and sufficient sacrifice for the sins of the whole world. And when the very last sin on earth was paid for, Jesus Christ hung his head in the locks on his shoulder, and he died. They buried Jesus in Joseph's new tomb, and he stayed there all night Friday night, all day Saturday, and all night Saturday night. Jesus' vindication did not come until early on Sunday morning when Jesus Christ rose from the dead physically on that first Easter Sunday morning, and that is the gospel. It does not matter that which the world can do to a believer. There is a power greater than the world that will support us if we are obedient. As Paul says of Jesus in Philippians chapter 2, verse 8 through 13, and being found in appearance as a man, Jesus humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death even the death of the cross. Therefore, God has also highly exalted him and has given him the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow, of those in heaven and of those on the earth and of those under the earth, and every tongue sh- and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you both to will and to do for his good pleasure. And even as Moses did with Miriam, God tells us in Philippians 2, 14 through 16, Do all things without complaining and disputing that you may become blameless and harmless children of God without fault in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast the word of life so that I may rejoice in the day of Christ that I have not run or labored in vain. So let us remember this example. And let us run our race with patience, as Hebrews chapter 12, verse 1 and 2 tells us. Therefore, we also, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which so easily ensnares us. 
and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of God. And that is our lesson for today. Let us pray. Gracious God, our Father, we thank you this morning for this lesson, and we thank you for the example of the meekness of Moses, who stood in the face of opposition and held his peace and stayed with the Scripture and said only that which you told him to say. We thank you for his example and for the example of our Savior, Jesus Christ, who when he was tried by the Jews and the Romans, did not justify his position, but simply confessed the fact that he was the Christ, the Son of the living God, and who submitted himself to the punishment of the Jews and the Romans, and then died on the old rugged cross, that our sins might be forgiven. And by his death has given us the glorious opportunity to emulate his example and to live as lights in the world by emulating that which he has told us to do. And we ask, Lord, that you would give us strength and that you would give us power in the face of the world's opposition, that we might be able to stand for your word, that we might be able to stand on your word, that we might not deviate from your word, but that we might do that which you have told us to do, even in the face of opposition for those that are the closest to us. And now, Lord, we thank you for all that are in the house today. And we ask you, Lord, that you would give us the traveling mercies as we go down from this place and then bring us back once again at the appointed time. And now, Lord, we thank you for all these things. We thank you for your goodness, for your mercy, and for your grace. And most of all, we thank you for your sacrifice on the cross for rising from the dead on that Sunday morning. Thank you, Lord. In the wonderful name of Jesus, we pray. Amen and thank God. Thank you for listening. We hope you were blessed by this presentation. For more audio and video content, please visit FamilyLifeBC.com.